what is the world's biggest problem? I think the answers have changed a bit over the past few years. If you go back to the 1960s or 70s, not that I was there, uh, but people might have said war or, or nuclear weapons. 80s, if you go back to then, they might have said it was something like global hunger. I mean, we remember things like Live Aid. We get a reminder every year, don't we, when they play Do They Know It's Christmas about 30 or 40 times a day on the radio. In the 90s, it was probably pollution. Do you remember uh, the hole in the ozone layer? We kept learning about it at school. I've never heard about it since. It's one of those weird things. But whatever happened to that? But pollution, probably, in the the 90s. In the noughties, it's probably terrorism and war again. And in the past 10 years, I think people would say probably global pandemics and all things like climate change. We'd all have slightly different answers, I think, if you looked and asked the world outside. And the world does have some big problems, doesn't it? We've seen in the past year how fragile our way of life can be. But what is the biggest problem? Is there something timeless? Is there something that doesn't depend on the ups and downs of the day? Something perhaps that's behind all the ups and downs of the day. And when we're looking for timeless, we need to go no further than the Lord Jesus. We've been looking at the beginning of his ministry for the last few weeks from Mark's Gospel. And we've been seeing his tremendous power and authority. Authority over truth and teaching. Authority over sickness and disease. Authority over evil. And last week we saw he has the power and authority to take people from outcast and unclean to welcomed and clean. And this week this theme of authority will come to a head. This week we're going to see his incredible authority, authority over the world's biggest problem. And in doing so he'll show us what that problem is. So first of all we see a man with a big problem. Let me read to you again verses 1 to 4. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. We saw at the end of the last chapter that despite Jesus' commands to the healed leper not to say to others what happened, he'd actually gone out and uh, told it far and wide. He'd been spreading news of Jesus, the healer, all over the place. But Jesus is is determined to continue with his mission to preach, because in chapter 128, that is what he came for. And that's what we find Jesus doing, don't we, in this room in Capernaum, preaching. And the place is packed Standing room only. No social distancing there, I imagine. They're all sort of crammed inside uh, this building. It's probably worse than Asda on Black Friday. You know, everybody's sort of crammed in. And four men approach, carrying their sick friend on a bed. That's probably little more than a thick sheet. Presumably, they've come from a town nearby. There couldn't have been that many sick people in Capernaum. Um, That's why he was healing in chapter one. So apparently the news has gone out and people are now coming in. But when they arrive, they can't get to see Jesus. The crowd is too big. They don't stand a chance. But they won't be deterred. They really believe that Jesus will be able to help them. Even though this man is paralysed and unable to walk, they truly believe that Jesus will be able to do something to help him. 
Now, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be that guy in those days, to be the paralyzed, to be disabled in those at times. No hospitals, no social security. The wheelchair hadn't even been invented, so people would have to carry you around. You'd be completely dependent on others just to move around your home. It would have been a huge challenge to even survive in those days. To be paralyzed in those days would have been a huge problem that would affect the whole of life. Thankfully, this guy has some friends that are willing to help him. That's a clue, isn't it, that actually these guys have have a heart, don't they, at least? Some would shun disabled people in those days, believing they were being punished by God. But these guys are there to help their friend, and they're not leaving until he gets some help. So, they hatch a plan. If they can't get in the door, then they're going to go in through the ceiling. Now, we don't know everything about the architecture of houses in those days, but we do know that houses normally had flat roofs. They would be sometimes used as like an extra room. So David in the Old Testament sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. It's not that she's sort of on the tiles, on the you know slanted roof. It's a sort of extra room in the house with a bit more privacy. Being on the roof was more normal in those days. But making a hole in the roof and letting someone down through it was still very, very weird. That's not a normal thing to happen, is it? But that's what they do. We said last week that Jesus showed audacity, showed chutzpah in touching, uh, physically touching a leper. Well, these, have, these guys have chutzpah in spades, don't they? Quite literally in spades as they dig the hole in the roof. They must trust not only in Jesus' power, you see, but in his kindness and patience. They're breaking in the ceiling where he's preaching. Verse 1 calls this his home, his base in Capernaum. Jesus could have kicked off when they got through the roof, couldn't he? Can you imagine? What do you think you're doing? I mean, what would it happen? Could you imagine if someone started digging through the roof right now? What are you doing? This is ridiculous. This is crazy. If you're wondering what the whimper is, sorry, everyone's looking around for the whimpery, it's a dog. <laughs> um, what are you doing? What have you done to my ceiling? You know how much this is going to cost to fix? Those are the sort of things that would be uh, going through our minds, wouldn't they? Jesus would have been well within his rights to tell them just to get lost. Or maybe fix the roof and then get lost. But they're trusting that this Jesus that they've heard about is not only strong and powerful, but kind. That he's going to show compassion when they actually get in. And they're not disappointed. He does help them, but in a rather roundabout way. And that's our second point. A message with some big issues. A message with some big issues. Let me read to you verses 5 to 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? wonder what you're expecting to happen when this man is lowered down in front of Jesus. I think most of us, the man included, would have expected Jesus to heal the man's legs. That's what he was expecting, wasn't it? That's what he imagined that they're doing this for. Instead, he sees the man and his friend's faith, and he forgives his sin. Now, you can imagine the reaction from the man, can't you? If you were that guy, you've gone through all this trouble, you've got your friends digging a hole through the roof, you've been laid down there in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I imagine he'd be thinking something like this. Um, Jesus, 
didn't actually come here for my sins forgiving. Look at me. I came for my legs, didn't I? I came for healing. Isn't that the priority? Isn't that what we should be doing here? That's my big problem after all, isn't it? But Jesus sees through that. He actually does deal with the man's biggest problem. The man just doesn't realise it. He sorts out the man's biggest problem, his sin. That's what he deals with. That's his priority. He deals with the man's sin. Now, there are some big issues that this uh, throws up. Issues that we have. Not issues that, in what Jesus actually said, but issues that we have as he said it. Firstly, is it saying that the man's sins are linked with his paralysis? Is it saying the man is disabled because he's a sinner? A big fat no. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if anything, what follows shows, uh, anything that follows shows us that's not the case. If the man's sins were causing his paralysis, then surely when Jesus deals with his sins, he'd be able to walk. But Jesus has to perform a second miracle, doesn't he, for the man to walk? So it's not saying that his sins are causing his paralysis. That said, all suffering in the world is a result of human sin, isn't it? Suffering was not there before Adam and Eve sinned. So in that sense, all suffering is a result of sin. But this man's suffering was not his own fault. Unless he did something that meant that somebody broke his legs. You know, got into a fight somehow or insulted someone. But we're not told. In most cases though, it's not. There's not that one-to-one link. If you think about it, the two most famous men in the Bible for suffering are Jesus and Job. And both of them were innocent, weren't they? Both of them were innocent men. So we can't make that one-to-one connection like that. It's not there to connect individual sin with individual suffering. So that was that's an issue that we can have, isn't it? But it's just not there. That's not what Jesus is saying. The second issue that it throws up, the second question, is whose faith is Jesus looking at? Joseph says when he saw their faith, he forgave his sin. Now I've changed my mind on this one this week. I think he's looking at all five of them. It can't not include the man on the mat having faith. It can't be that they're sort of dragging him there, kicking and streaming. Actually, he believes that Jesus can help as well. What's interesting, though, is that their faith showed itself in such radical action. I think we tend to think of faith as quite passive, don't we? And it is in one sense, isn't it? It's relying on believing in another. But their belief, their faith, their confidence in Jesus' kindness and power led to very bold action, didn't it? We often contrast faith and action. But actually here, true faith leads to bold action. Does ours? Does our faith lead us to these sort of bold, audacious things that these men did because they believed that Jesus could help? So that's the second question uh, that it throws up. He is looking at the man's faith as well, and, and we see that faith in action. But the issue that Jesus' statement threw up at the time was this. How can Jesus forgive this man's sin? How can Jesus forgive sin? You see, sin, if you think about it, is person to person. It's between them and between us and God. That's really how sin works. So imagine for a second that a fight uh, broke out between two burly blokes on the street uh, late at night. And you're walking by. And the woman's sort of saying, who hit my wife? 
well, you stole my watch. Well, you punched me. I don't know why they sound like the Southerners. I'm not a fair parent. Yeah. <laughs> no offense to Well, you punched me. Well, you kicked me. And they're whacking at each other and they're going at it in the street. And you go up to them and you say, don't worry. Stop fighting. Don't worry. I forgive you. It would make no sense, would it? You can imagine their response. What are you doing? How can you forgive either of us? Actually, the fight is between us two. You might, end, you know, you're not the injured party in this. Though, if you try and get into the middle of a fight, you may end up being the injured party, mind you, uh, in those things. But sin is between individuals, and between individuals and God. Forgiveness has to come from the one who's been hurt. Otherwise, it's nonsense, isn't it? All sin, though, is against God. Because all sin that we commit hurts God, is against God. So listen to King David from Psalm 51. Against you, this is talking to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's how David views his sin. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But bear in mind, that was after his adultery with Bathsheba, when actually he had Uriah the Hittite uh, put to death. And you want to say, well, we'll steady on now, David. <laughs> Didn't you sin against Uriah in this? You know, you, you slept with his wife and then you had him murdered. But David is making a big point, isn't he? All sin is against God and primarily against God. It's an affront to him, a rebellion against him, a personal attack. And that's why God needs to forgive sin. That's why we need God to forgive our sin. It's all well and good if you seek forgiveness from the person that you hurt, but we also need to seek forgiveness from God, don't we? That's who we need forgiveness from. And the Pharisees understand this problem. They understand what's at stake here as Jesus claims to forgive this man's sin. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're sort of right, aren't they? They've actually understood something right. Someone who can claim to forgive sins is claiming to be God. Only the injured party can forgive sins. Now the Pharisees are right in the sense that they spot the problem. And in 99.9% of the cases they'd be justified in taking issue, wouldn't they? But they just don't know who they're dealing with. And far from interrupting his teaching as they come in through the roof... He's going to use his miracles now to teach them something. He's going to show them who they're dealing with. And so our final point, a miracle with a big reaction. Have a look at verses 8 to 12. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, Take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately, sorry, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus can read subtext in what's going on. To be fair, Jesus can read their minds, it tells us, doesn't it? So he knows what's going on. They think he's a charlatan, a liar, a fraudster. After all, he's claiming to forgive sin. And claiming to forgive sin is easy, isn't it? 
Just how could you check? It's not like you can see forgiveness, is it? It doesn't turn you blue or give you a third arm or something. You can't immediately see that someone's sins have been forgiven. There's long-term stuff, but in the immediate, you can't see it. Anyone can claim to forgive sin, because it would be impossible to check, really, until Judgment Day. That's the only day you'd really know. But Jesus won't be taken as a charlatan. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And we know the answer now, don't we? Your sins, your sins are forgiven, is easier to say, because who can know? No one can check. But it's a lot harder to say, take up your mat and walk, because you'll know immediately whether it's worked. Anyone could go around claiming to forgive sin, couldn't they? But if you go around telling physically disabled people to just get up and walk, people will soon know whether you're the real deal, won't they? So that's what Jesus does. He does the visible miracle to show that he has the power to do the invisible miracle. He says to the man, get up. And the man gets up. And the people are astonished and glorify God. They've never seen anything like this. This is proof to the Pharisees, the visible proof that makes the invisible seen, if you like. The visible that proves the invisible. It's proof of his authority to forgive. He's no mere man. He's no fraudster. Who is he then? Who is this man? Well, for the first time in Mark's Gospel, he uses that title, the Son of Man, for himself. Do you see that down in verse 10? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. He's talking about himself. He's going to use the phrase 15 times in Mark's Gospel, and it's his favourite name for himself. And it's perhaps a deliberately ambiguous term. In Hebrew poetic language, it can just mean a human being. So, random example, Jeremiah 50, 40. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbouring cities, declared the law, Lord, no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn there. God addresses the prophet Ezekiel as son of man all the way through the book of Ezekiel. So it can just mean man. And yet, in the book of Daniel, the term takes on a special meaning. The son of man is an end-time figure. A human being who comes with the clouds of heaven and receives authority, glory and sovereign power from God. Who has a kingdom that will never pass away. So Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I think it's on the back of your notice sheets. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, and that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's who the Son of Man is in Daniel. So what does Jesus mean? Well, it's ambiguous enough that Jesus can use it without causing a stir every time he uses it, which if he went around saying Son of God all the time, that would cause a bit more of an issue. But it's clear from the context which one he has in mind. Authority is something that belongs to that glorious Son of Man of Daniel 7. He is the one with authority given by God to do what he has to do, to forgive sin. He is God himself. So why does that matter? Well, it means that Jesus has the authority that we need. 
We saw last week that he has authority and power to make the unclean clean, and now we see how we all do it, by dealing with our sin problem. Jesus can offer us forgiveness. He can give us a fresh start with God. Jesus can deal with the world's biggest problem, sin. And he does it person by person, individual by individual. What we need to do is realise that it's not just the world's biggest problem, but that it's our own biggest problem. The Times newspaper once ran a series of questions posed to the day's most prominent authors. One of the questions was, what's wrong with the world today? And the author, G.K. Chesterton, responded with this. He said, dear sir, I am. What's wrong with the world? Dear sir, I am. He'd made the move from realising sin is a big problem out there to sin is a big problem in here. And that's true whether you're a believer or not a believer this morning. If you're a believer, you may have figuratively heard, son, your sins are forgiven. You know that you're forgiven by God of your sins. But it doesn't mean that sin ceases to be a problem in our lives, does it? Sin still destroys relationships. Sin still darkens our fellowship with God. Sin still robs us of assurance. The only deadly sin is unforgiven sin. But sin, even when it's forgiven, can cause a problem in our life. But it's not that Jesus just forgives our sin and then sort of leaves us to struggle with the pain and hurt that it causes. As though he leaves us burning in a fiery pit with a promise that we won't die. It's okay. No. He gives us his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to help us fight sin in our lives. To help extinguish the flames that damage us and others and offend our Heavenly Father. The Spirit helps us to become more holy, more like his son, Jesus. If you want to know more about that, that's what we're looking at tonight. But sin is still a problem in our lives, even though in the end it can do no lasting damage. But God gives us his spirit to help fight it. But if you're not a believer, then you have a bigger problem. We said that sin is not just against others, but against God. And you might be thinking, well, I've never done anything serious. I've never done anything so bad. But think about it. If you slap a stranger, I don't, I don't know if you've ever done that. I've never done that. But slap a stranger and you'll get in trouble. Slap a judge or a policeman and you'll get in more trouble. Don't you? You'll end up in a prison cell. Slap the queen and you'll end up in the Tower of London, won't you? What happens when you sin against the God of the universe? Who upholds the very atoms that we're made of? creator of the rolling spheres out in space, ruler of the cosmos, who incidentally is the judge of all mankind. How serious is it to offend him? Thankfully though, we find from our passage that he's not only the most important and powerful being in the universe, he's also the most caring and compassionate and willing to offer forgiveness. But if like the Pharisees, we won't accept who Jesus is, we don't stand a chance. Jesus offers pardon to whoever will come in faith. But if we won't come, he won't forgive. And we're left with that huge problem. The one that's at the root of all the world's problems. War and terrorism as we fight and hate each other. Hunger as we don't share. Pollution and climate change as we don't care. Even global pandemics, we can see how selfish we are, can't we? Come on, who, who bought all the toilet rolls? Must have been someone. Of course we've seen there's good in humanity too, we're all made in the image of God after all, but if we don't let Jesus deal with our problem of sin, 
then that sin will be the problem that breaks not just our world, but us. Our biggest problem is sin. But we see here that Jesus is bigger. So let's go to Jesus, who has authority to deal with our biggest problem and forgive our sin. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that our sin is big. Father, we know that even as believers, we, we still sin. And Father, we know that it's forgiven. But Father, we know that it, it still hurts. We know that it still damages us. So Father, help us with the Spirit's help to, to put to death sin in our lives. Father, if we haven't been forgiven, Father, help us to come to you for forgiveness. Father, bring us to yourself, that we might know those words, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.